Well, Scott, it's good to see you again. And you were starting off with our conversation with lamentation, grief, and despair. Yeah, that's right. And then, and then the next thing that you talked about was Ghana and crash landing out of the Ghana. Is the crash landing of the Ghana, is that your grief and despair? Or yeah, yes. I think that's what made it so devastating is because it's such a change from what the state I was in. And then I, I think the initial thought is initial. So I was able to go such a long time and such a liberating time without any unwholesome thoughts. And, mm -hmm. and to the point where it's like, it was like, uh, it was like I was on a honeymoon with like the jhana or something, and then how about with life? With with life, it's, yeah, having a honeymoon with being alive. With being alive, everything was good, and I'm pretty sure it it I definitely went deeper and deeper, and it was more tranquil and nicer and just ah, just so good. Deeper, I'm not sure about. How about more relaxed? More, more and more relaxed, less and less um, okay. agitation, even subtle agitation. Um, okay. Let's use the word this way. When uh, it is very common in English language to talk, use the word deep for being asleep, mm. being out of it, mm. or deep into dukkha. Mm -hmm. If that's what we use with the word deep, then you wouldn't say deep in uh, jhana, because that makes no sense, because jhana is exactly the opposite of deep. Mm. Deep asleep is deep awake. We don't ever say the word deep awake. Deep celebration, we don't use the word for deep celebration. Wide awake. Wide awake, exactly. And that's open. exactly what we're talking about. Wide, open, expansive. And so I do not know where this idea of deep, like deep meditation ever came from, because it just doesn't have that use of the word. Except that that's the behavior that many students who are having deep meditation. They're not in John at all. They're deep in uh, almost somnambulation, almost at the point of drowsiness. And it's very easy for people who uh, practice meditation to get in a drowsy state because of the way that they're practicing. For one thing, they're not paying attention to taking long, deep breaths, and long, deep breaths are energizing. They're uplifting, and you become to feel tingly alive, but not breathing well. Now the body is not being uh, fed correctly, and that's the same thing as then going into a defensive mode or a shutdown mode. So deep is shutting down, and that's where you put bodies when somebody is so deep that they're dead, and so we want to bury them deep. <clears throat> so let's be careful about this word deep. Okay. 
because it is a major problem for Western meditation. I see. I see how that word is a problem now that you put it that way. It is. It's like there's so many habits. There's so many things that are just like ingrained in me that I just don't even like. I just use that word, even though it's like not a good word. I I get that. (laughs) But I uh, know I do it, too. Uh-huh. I use on a regular basis. I get off in a roll and I'll use the word suffering. And then I'll, nope, it's not suffering. It's dukkha, and dukkha <laughs> means satis- dissatisfaction. It doesn't mean suffering. Mm. Yeah, I mean, suffering is a lot more serious than du- than dissatisfaction. Just, right. Yeah. <laughs> suffering is really deep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> deep into suffering, deep into yeah. dissatisfaction. But we don't say, uh, uh, well, we could say deeply satisfied, but what we mean more by that is profoundly satisfied. Mm, profoundly satisfied, yeah. Okay. Anyways. This really is good enough. But that's a bright, wide, open state. Rather than shutting down. Now, what would you say, what? Sometimes it feels like this is 99% good enough, but then there's like 1% that's not good enough. I don't know if that makes sense. What would you yes, say? Yes, it, it does 100%. That 1% does because let us imagine that some grandmother had spent a year, uh, periods of time, this and that, knitting a sweater out of a ball of yarn you know how they knit right but if one kid then while she's working on that sweater almost a sweater almost finished he starts pulling on that yarn that she's knitted together that's the one percent he keeps pulling and he keeps pulling and soon he unravels the uh the sweater By pulling on a thread, you can also destroy a piece of clothing by you find a loose thread. The right thing to do is to tie it off. The better thing to do is just break it carefully, but pulling on it. If you pull on things, you can become disrobed. (laughs) (laughs) You did hear the joke about the monk who went around, who got disrobed. Because he went around that way. No, I didn't hear that. <laughs> All right. Well, it comes from a Catholic joke that the uh, the Catholic priest was defrocked for running around that way. Okay. It's not. I'm not getting it. I'm, I don't get the joke. <laughs> well, if he runs around disrobed, oh, just running around, they're going to disrobe him. Exactly. Well, that's what happens Uh, when we pull on things. When you start pulling on things, that's all been knitted together, then uh, you're going to destroy it. The same thing is true with the mind. Here you have knitted your way into the first jhana, you've collected all the factors, and then 1% of dissatisfaction comes, and you pull on it. How How do you tie it off, or... Close it. Well, the, the, the easy answer is wakey, wakey. 
to that 1% too. What is it that's going to pull you out of jhana? This is one of the most important features. And uh, there are several uh, points in the suttas. One of the things, going to very quickly, the issue of sunyata. One of the ways of reading the suttas is by reading not just what's there, but what's not there. It's like what the teacher didn't say. Okay. Now, this is to be applied to one of these suttas in the Anguru Nakar, where, where he's telling about the skills of the first jhana. And the first skill is to be able to get into the jhana. And as we develop that skill, we are able to get into the first jhana in easier and easier and easier, which means that we get into the habit of dropping those unwholesome thoughts when they arise. All right, and then the second skill is to be able to maintain that first jhana because everybody has moments of first jhana all throughout the day. Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa referred to it in a book of um, uh, Nibbana for Everyone. And I asked specifically Achan Po about that. And he says, yes, that what applies to the to Nibbana, that people have little coolnesses throughout the day. There's many examples of that. One of them is, is that after you get home or not home, once you leave work and you go out into the parking lot and get into your car and shut the door and turn the engine on, often people will rest for a minute before they put it in gear and drive off. A little Nevada moment. Now, how not come? Quite, not quite first jhana, but they can have a little Nibbana moment. It is first jhana where they have all the factors together in the sense that uh, what I mean by the first jhana is that they intentionally relax rather than doing it subconsciously or not knowing what they're doing. So an average Joe will go get in his car after work and just rest for a moment. But a jhana dude will rest for that moment knowing what he's doing, in other words, now he's applying his mind to being at a state of rest for a moment, to relax for a moment. People do that when they go into the bar. They haven't even gotten their drink yet, but just going into the bar and getting into the atmosphere. You see people doing that all the time. That gush of out breath. At that point of sitting down, the ordinary person has little Nibbana moments throughout the day. And the point is, is that if someone never had any relaxation, never had any little Nibbana moments, they'd be really freaked out. They'd be in the hospital, they'd be in the grave, they'd be someplace not. But the fact is, is that we do have a chance day to day often to just cool off. Jhana is the same way. In fact, the cooling off is the prerequisite for the job. So then the guy can sit in that car and take another deep breath and says, oh, I'm so happy that I'm out of work now. yippee ki kaye, I'm free. And now he's having wholesome thoughts, all right? But how long is he going to sit there before he now has the thought, oh, I've got to go pick up a bunch of stuff on the store on the way home. Let me go ahead and drive. 
All right, and so he comes out of his little Dibana moment. Why? Because of a thought. A thought of a to-do list. Okay, so let me ask you this question. Going into an actual practice session, now that you're in that first jhana, now that you really are relaxed and having wholesome thoughts, what is that 1% thought that came up? That one mind moment, the 1% of dissatisfaction was a thought. What was that thought? This is a rhetorical question. You're just, I, I can see by your faces is that you don't remember. <laughs> You're trying to dig it up. Because <laughs> it's very deep. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. not right there in space. Uh -huh. What I wanted to ask you is how how did I enter the jhana so easily right now when I was in sorrow and lamentation and you all you said was you could just think about something else. And then that just like why did that take me out of it? why did that take me into jhana? Like I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> Because, like, I want to harness, I want to be able to do that, like, whenever I want, like. <laughs> I forgot which was the psychiatrist who said this. So this was actually something from a psychiatrist because he, he was giving a lecture way back in the 70s. And actually, this guy was very much associated with NLP. And the I and so I've used this on a regular, not regular, but occasional basis. The idea of that it's the psychiatrist's job is to change the client's diaper, his mental diaper. He comes in with his mind full of shit <laughs> and clean his butt <laughs> and powder him up and put on a new diaper. It took him less than 12 minutes to do that with you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank, thanks, Papa. I guess <laughs> I pooped my pants again. <laughs> well, it's a skill to be developed. Because if you can do that with your own mind, you could do it with others. This is the job of a good Dhamma teacher is to not just to convey information, but to literally be able to help someone in that particular moment, right now, clean yeah. out your mind. So if you can do it here with me, you can do it. But the question is about the pulling of the thread. That first thought that pulls us out of jhana is almost always, oh, I've got to do something. It's a thought of an action that we think is more important than being relaxed and comfortable. And so you start to pull on it. And next thing you know, you put your car in gear and you're driving right into the ditch. And out of John. And what ditch did you land in? It was a pretty deep ditch. <laughs> Despair, <think> lamentation. Yeah. <laughs> oh, poor me. I had a beautiful Jana and now I have lost it. 
Yeah. And now those are the thoughts you're having. Oh, poor me. I had it and I've lost it. How can I go get it again? And those were all a series <laughs> of unwholesome thoughts. Yeah, one yeah, after yeah. another, after another, just like one uh, spade full of dirt after another. There you go, digging yourself into a pit again. I think this is what happened. I think now that I'm thinking back. So. When you so, tried to remember, it didn't happen. And then when you listened to me, all of a sudden, it just pops right up. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. I'm listening. <laughs> so when, uh, when, uh, so I, the jhana became so good and so relaxed that I felt I didn't need to, like, there's no, I was like, oh, there's no more unwholesome thoughts that could ever come up or this, like, nothing could stop this. Like, I was like, but the, so like I wasn't on guard for like throwing out the unwholesome thought when it showed up. So I was just like, Oh, like the unwholesome thought, even though it was very small in the beginning, I just thought like, Oh, it's just another part of the jhana, but it wasn't another part of the jhana. Um, it was, uh, <laughs> it was like a thinking. This is, yeah. So this is exactly what we mean by being able to sustain. That's the quality of the first jhana, <clears throat> is to maintain that maintenance. Okay, clear examples all over the place. One of the problems that the Russians are having is, is that they're not maintaining their equipment. They're not maintaining their uh, people. They're not maintaining their uh, uh, generals. That's the whole point is maintenance. Any house that is bought has to have repetitive maintenance for it. The older it gets, the more maintenance it needs. The older your jhana moment is, the more maintenance it needs. But that maintenance now is a skill to be developed. The guarding of the mind is called. Go ahead. And would you say that maintenance is like something you're talking about earlier? It's that balance. Right, it's that ability to uh, like stay yeah. stay mm -hmm. balanced. So, like even when even the uh, the little thread comes or the little unwholesome thought kind of just washes off you, it's not a problem that it's there, but it doesn't like spiral into it doesn't like become something bigger, right? Uh huh. Yeah. And the thought of recognizing that that thought's an unwholesome thought and that but shall not pull on that thread. Mm, like don't yeah, go down that remember, road yeah. yeah don't go down that road yeah don't dig that hole all right that's one of the things about sustaining the wholesome thoughts applying and sustaining the mind to the wholesome applying the mind to the gladdening of the mind and then a little thread will come or a little bit 1% will come, just one mind moment of, oh, I've got to go do something or this is nice, but, all right? And it's that but that is that little thread. And then the rest of the sentence is already pulling on it. And a few, and a few uh, uh, thoughts later, and you've unraveled your job. And a few thoughts later, you're in lamentation, grief, and despair over having lost the jhana. Or did you go deep? <laughs> and, and crash landed, you said. <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's not the first time this has happened, so I'm kind of used to it. <laughs> well, everybody yeah. does this. That's the whole point of it being a double-edged skill set. The skill of getting into the first jhana, and then the skill of maintaining the first jhana. This is what's referred to as guarding the mind. And that one of the avenues of doing that is with guarding the breath. By continuing to guard the breath, we can guard the mind. And now the guarding of the breath can also be thought of as the following of the breath or the chasing of the breath. But normally what that means is, is that we're actually going to take mind moment after mind moment to, to go as we're breathing in from the outside air into the body through the nostrils you can feel the nostrils you can go into the throat you can actually by now the chest is expanding and you can feel the chest expand then at the top of the breath you can feel the touch of the cloth and everything that's around and now as you start to breathe back out you allow the mind to go back up the throat out the nose and and rest then in the air that has just escaped okay and so that's the in and the out with each breath and that's also a part of gardening the mind guarding the mind by following the breath that's one way to do it and in fact that's an easier way to do it than most of uh, looking at every thought to try to figure out, is this an unwholesome or a wholesome thought or what? The answer would be is, is that if you were instead practicing um, the following of the breath, then any thought that comes that's not following the breath would then be a distracting thought that's distracting you from following the breath. What is that one um, sutta? that talks about the breath or it says <clears throat> breathing in deep i know that i breathe in deep breathing in shallow it's like the satipatthana sutta is that right no it's the oh, anapanasati no. sutta so, yeah that's what we're practicing anapanasati and there's a whole major sutta about it and it just happens to follow its twin sutta which is uh number 117 is the great 40, which talks about the Eightfold Noble Path and how to apply it and uh, and uh, or, and what needs to be done in the sense that now the next sutta, the Anapanasati Sutta, as this is the practice that we use to follow the Eightfold Noble Path. Now, I was, I was wondering if you could explain, um, so it says like, there's part of it that says breathing in i'm aware of my body is am i misquoting that is there no, something that says that? that that's good enough right okay that breathing um, in mindfully breathing in as i train the mind to do blah blah is the whole rest of the sutta only steps one and two of the Anapanasati Sutta out of 16. And we have to make sure when we use the word step that we're not talking about marching orders, we're talking about uh, frolicking. We're talking about a waltz, 
the two-step all over the place like that. And so the organized method would be that you have to go march through these steps. But that's not the way that we live our lives. We live our lives in a normal, ordinary, natural way, which means that whatever step that we need to take is the step that we're going to take now. And so uh, basically the waking up is going to be step number nine, the sati, and the um, investigation would be step nine of Anapanasati, and then step 10 immediately start to gladden the mind or start having wholesome thoughts. Like, yeah, let's follow the breath or, you know, what's happening and just look and, uh, and enjoy. So the gladdening of the mind now then is applied to step one of mindfully, now that you've got mindfulness come, you just got some mindfulness. What are we going to do with it? We're going to mindfully breathe in and mindfully breathe out while we are mindfully gladdening the mind. And so we can apply the mind to the breath. And think about the breathing and think about how nice it is to still be alive. We can still breathe and it doesn't hurt. But it feels satisfying and joyful. And so having thoughts about the, uh, the breath as well as guarding the breath. Or mindfully making sure that this is a long breath and it only takes one mind moment out of a whole long breath. Then you can do a lot of other stuff during that in breath, like watching the body, which would then be called step three of experiencing the body while mindfully breathing in long and experiencing the body while mindfully breathing out long. So, yep, that's it. You, you quoted that fairly well. What about uh, tranquilizing bodily formations? Basically, bad translation completely. The guys who translated that had not a clue about what they were talking about. Now, animal trainers, they know how to tranquilize an, an animal. They get a great big gun and a cement and some poison and they shoot that dart and then boom. And the lion is, is uh, tranquilized. Okay. And that uh, what we should be using the word instead of tranquilized is something that you can do. Because tranquilized is kind of a deep word. <sighs> Relaxed is a better word. And That's more relatable. Uh-huh. And what do we relax? The body's formations. What is what forms in the body? Tensions. Tensions. Mm -hmm. So now we're going to relax the tension. We check for the body to see where is any tension. Is there any tension in the neck? Is there any tension in the chest? Where is the tension? And so this is the examination of the body, but we have to do it with the wholesome thought because some of the thoughts that we have create tension. Unwholesome thoughts will create tension. Like, dang, this is too much work. Or, oh, my knee hurts. 
or oh my back hurts or oh my butt hurts <laughs> instead of finding ways to be comfortable so in fact you could say then that these people who practice deep meditations and sit very long time are actually creating tensions in the body that then gives them um let us say tiredness and when the body is tired the mind is tired but when the body is alert and energetic and woken up and free from tension so in other words anapanasati is going up and western meditation is going down you got to turn things around completely and so whenever one of those words one of those turnaround words come to take you down i'm kind of lucky i don't have a lot of that western meditation because like most uh i never actually tried meditating i just uh i think i told you in the beginning like um the only meditation i do would be to do nothing and sometimes it would be nice like i would just want to do nothing and it would be nice but sometimes i'd be like trying to do nothing which isn't doing nothing but like i never really like learned a formal meditation so like I, I feel lucky in that sense. Like it's like I could just hear what you're saying. <laughs> so. Right, because even when students recognize that how they've been practicing wrongly, still we have great attachment to those habits. Mm-hmm. So not only is there a habit of practice that way, there's also the habit of wanting to practice that way. Because that's what I've been wanting to practice, and that's what I've been practicing. Okay, so um, you're you are lucky in that regard. It would be almost, and in fact, this is a story that I can tell you, of playing a piece of music wrongly, and the piece of music was specifically uh, Chopin's Waltz in C sharp minor. That I was playing it wrongly with the fingering wrong, rounding up making a mess of it, but this is the way that the teacher taught me. Now I get into university as a as a music major. And that um, uh, all of the music majors have to have two years of piano class if they can't pass the entrance exam. And I've got the entrance exam because I didn't play this piece of music. Well, most who don't play the piano, they don't even try to take the exam. They just go ahead and take two years of piano classes. But here I am all tough dude and I'm gonna do it. And I failed that exam because I didn't play the thing right. Because the teacher that I had was just an ordinary teacher. In fact, she wasn't even the best teacher in town. She was not the teacher that I wanted to have, but the teacher that I wanted to have was too busy and I was new in new kid in town and so I didn't then remember that I had done something with uh at another university in Rockingham North Carolina had gone to a um uh, a, a band clinic and and a part of the band clinic is that they were the audience for this guy doing his PhD in uh, uh virtual piano and this guy lived only about 30 miles from me. And so I got in touch with him and he taught me how to play that piece of music correctly. But almost all of the practice that was done 
was to undo the mistakes that I had been making in making that piece of music. The fingering was wrong. And because the fingering was wrong, the tempo was wrong. And so I had to not only unlearn the fingering, but I had to unload, unlearn the tempo that was playing. Okay. And how he had me do that was very zen to slow things down one note at a time to make sure that the fingering is correctly. And then as we speeded it up, we speeded it up in various ways so that the first and the third note had emphasis and the second and the fourth had no emphasis. So then you turn that around. And then you have one note out of three that has emphasis and one note out of three and two notes out of three that don't. And finally, the hand got it to the point that it was back raw again. And so now it was easy to play, but it took me weeks to unlearn a piece of music. And that's what happens with meditators also, that we have to actually unlearn our wrong practice. And this is one of the things that I got from the Buddha Dasa, but I had already in, in high school to college had learned that lesson about piano. And so I did, did, did the right effort <clears throat> to unlearn. And basically what I was working with was the old cliche that if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. <clears throat> Almost all Western meditators do that one. The ones who really go deep are the ones who are really struggling, really trying, keep coming back and keep coming back. And they did for about 10 years, getting some successes here, there, and yon. But when I mentioned that to Bhikkhu Buddha Dasi, he says, no, 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 no. He was chuckling. He was laughing at me. He says, if at first you don't succeed, look at what you're doing. That applies very much to that 1% or that one thought, that 1% of dissatisfaction was satisfaction, 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 and then one mind moment of dissatisfaction. And if you're not aware of that, you're going to pull on that thread. And so the next and the next and the next is not going to be 1% dissatisfaction. It's going to be a crash landing, which is your word for it. By pulling on that thread or by continuing down that unwholesome trail, which is exactly what we're all in the habit of doing anyway. We have a thought and every action is driven by a thought. If you don't think about it, it's not going to happen. But so now, because you said to me before that you would allow yourself to do nothing, just to sit and relax. Now we're recognizing that, hey, we not only have the Buddha's uh, permission, but a long lineage of exquisitely masterful <laughs> uh, uh, Buddhas like Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa yeah. and Achan Po, etc. That are that's saying, just, yes, that's, yeah. that, <laughs> that's the way like to I do was, it. I was going around with like a, a wrench, like I, I was like a like before i skype called you i was going around trying to fix a house but like i just had a wrench but then you gave me like this entire toolkit that's what like it's like more powerful I, I don't know i don't know why it's more powerful because the teaching is so simple 
the teaching is so simple, but somehow it's it's like it's way more useful. But this the practice is the same. The practice is just being happy. Like that's what the that's what it, that's what it's always been. Like it's always been being satisfied and being happy. Um, mm -hmm. just there's not much to it. It's easy. People yeah. can live their lives naturally like that. That's one of the things that I'm working with on with my daughter. Not completely successful yet, but she's still only nine years old. But the distinction is, is that everybody wants, her school teachers want, the family wants, uh, and uh, Tam's family is quite extended because she's, she's more or less the boss uh, of the kitchen uh, at the uh, hotel where she works. And because of that, she has a lot of friends at work who show up here at the house. But Thai people are different anyway, and so the children are nurtured. And what I'm saying is, is that my particular influence upon Kitty is mollified by the fact that she's influenced by a whole lot of people who want her to go do things that she doesn't want to do. I'm not against her doing what she's told to do by all these people, but my emphasis is upon can she still stay awake and alert and can she enjoy doing it? And that includes when she gets fussed at. So she has the habit of getting very, very frightened and starts to tear up and cry. Uh, and that um, I have seen it. Long before. That in fact, who does the bully pick on but the one who is a victim? And so if mom in any situation, not just with Kitty, but when mom is angry at a kid trying to get the kid to do something and the kid is frozen in fear, mom's going to get more and more rage to get this kid to do something and the kid is just shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. All right, this is what leads to a whipping. It happens a lot. And so this is what I've got to teach Kitty is, is that when she is confronted, she has to stand up to it. She's got to be there. She, get, she can't cry. One of the things that happened, by the way, is, is that uh, um, uh, it's okay with me that the dogs get on the bed. But it's not okay with Tam for the dogs to get on the bed. The dogs are smart. And so when Tam's not around, they probably won't. But occasionally they'll get on the bed or one of them will get on the bed. And then the game is, is that Kitty will take a photo with her cell phone of the dog on the bed to show mom. <laughs> and so now here Kitty comes with the cell phone and Lucky goes into that freeze state. She knows she's supposed to get off the bed. She knows that this is dangerous, but she's frozen in fear and is confused and doesn't get off the bed. But you can see she's not satisfied with being on the bed. Her head is down and she's moping, you know, like that, just sitting there. And that's when I pointed out to Kitty, look at what uh, Lucky is doing right now. That she is so afraid of what's happening that she's not doing what she needs to do. This is exactly how you do it. That when mom is yelling at you, you uh, go into, oh, poor me, and then mom gets more outraged. And so um, 
later, then I start to kick to tease Kitty about that so that she can, in fact, recognize. And, and it happened like this. At one time, I interrupted it when mom was going after Kitty. Uh, because actually Kitty was mixing two different kinds of soap together to make something. I don't know what she was doing, but you could see that there was uh, the blue that came out of the squeeze bottle as well as the white powder of something. And, and uh, this stuff's actually Western. It's very expensive in Thailand, about $9 a bottle of shampoo. And so Kitty had used the bottle. And it's not the first time that she'd done that. She likes to play in the bath and, you know, whatnot. So anyway, um, I intervened and made a game out of it. So the kitty was beginning to laugh and to joke and to play. And then I was able to make a deal with her. This is not the first time that this has happened. And look, you go freak out every time that it does. It would be better if you don't use mom's expensive shampoo. That's when she began to understand. See, when she was frozen in fear, she didn't get it. But I could get her into a good state. Now, that makes me, that brought up some childhood memories there just now. Uh, so I could remember the first time I, the first time the fear really set in when I was a kid. Um, I used to, it was, it was in first grade. And I used to talk a lot because I was just a happy little kid talking when I wasn't supposed to be. So when I was talking too much, the teacher would give these um, slips, these punishment papers that we had to bring home, show our parents, get signed and mm -hmm. bring it back. And the punishment right. was, oh, talking too much, bring back to your parents. And my dad did not take that lightly. <laughs> So that resulted in my, at the time, greatest fear of getting a spanking. So I would get my butt whooped. And I just remember um, I used to get those slips. And that's the first time I can remember um, lying is I take the slips and I hide it somewhere. And I never tell my parent about it when I was supposed to bring it home. And then that planted a seed of I was perpetually afraid of getting found out from that point on and then there's that fear that like that fear would just be and then like it's that same fear that just like is getting less and less uh as i progress on the spiritual path but when i experience fear it's that exact same feeling as when i was a little kid in first grade getting in trouble for the first time <laughs> like that's crazy like and How when we're afraid, we can't think straight. Yeah. And you couldn't think straight, so you wanted to hide. You wanted to hide that note. You wanted to lie. You wanted to escape. You wanted to run away rather than standing up, thinking about it, seeing it as some uh, issue that you can handle. All right. So you have now been in that habit your whole life. And in fact, that's possibly one of the, the thoughts that you had of that thread, and then you pull on it. So here you are a happy camper sitting in first jhana, just everything is easy peasy, and then something happens. Sometimes very quick, 
And if you're you're also very quick, you can put that to a stop and come back into the first jhana. Or actually maintain the first jhana because one thought is not enough to pull you out of it. But if you pull on that thread, if you go down that path, if you start digging that hole by having one thought after another, like one percent dissatisfaction leads to two percent which leads to 3% as we're thinking about it. But if you can catch it at three thoughts or 3%, you can say, wait a minute, throw that stuff out. Aha, I see you, Myra. I see that unwholesome stream of thinking. And the quicker we get at it, then the uh, easier it is just to come back and relax. And when we're completely gone, now never mind, we've got to start all over again and get ourselves back into the first jhana. But that's hard to do right after you've crash landed because now you're in a great state of remorse. Oh, I had it and now I've lost it. Rather than, oh, never mind, start again. We can patch this old plane up and get it back in the air, sure enough. I think, like, so there, it seems like um, following the precepts too, following the precepts seems to be con more conducive uh, to jhana. Like the more honest I am, like the more straightforward, just telling the honest truth and not hiding anything, the more open I feel. And like the more, because yeah. <laughs> uh, part of me says like, oh, I don't want to admit to Domorado on recording that I was experiencing sorrow and lamentation. Now people are going to be like, oh, this guy, he, he experienced <laughs> the sorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Now it's like, well, well, now try to use now everybody's going to take it personally in the sense that they can see that, hey, if you can come out of your lamentation, grief, despair in less than 10 minutes. So then can they I. can too. So can yeah. they. So it can help. Yeah, I see that yeah. utility. So this whole process them. is a testimonial. But that's what we have to be able to see that we can not only get our diaper changed, <laughs> we can change it ourselves. Mm. And the next skill would be is, is to stop crapping all over ourselves. Let's find the correct and proper way of giving a dump. <laughs> Now, I have a question. Sometimes I feel like I want to uh, give you a call, but I don't feel like there's a good like question to get things rolling or I don't feel like I have like like for I feel like the best calls we've had was when like something was there was like a problem <laughs> and then like I just like bring it up to you and then it, it shed some clarity on that. But then sometimes I feel like if I if I try to call you because like I just want to like um just like enjoy the interaction or talk about something or just be in john like just have have john on easy mode um, um even though john is always on easy mode <laughs> john is easy um but but uh it feels like i'm trying too hard and then that doesn't make it easier to be in charge. And then I'm like the whole time I'm trying to like get what you're saying, but I don't quite get it. And I'm trying to force it and it's like not working. I don't know. 
<laughs> this is the whole point about the repetition. Repetition, repetition, repetition. An example of that is, is that for some reason or another, someone painted, painted this house black. And then somebody else wants it to paint it white. And here you are with your paintbrush and your white paint. Guess what? You're going to take several coats of paint of white paint to get that black to not show through. That's what they've been able to learn about automobile painting is, is that many, many of the beautiful paint jobs on automobiles is 10, 12, 14, 16 coats, layer after layer after layer of a first particular color and then a clear coat and then another color and then a clear coat. And it winds up being marvelous because they keep repeating the process over and over and over again. And this is what we have with the Dhamma. This is that, yes, if you call, we're going to just add a new code of wholesome. And pretty soon it gets covered up. Another, you can imagine, this is the uh, analogy that we had one time. Imagine that you've got an open sewer and an open cesspool. And if you throw one hamburger in that cesspool, that hamburger is going to just sink to the bottom. It's going to be part of the sewer. Not take long at all. But if you start throwing a whole bunch of hamburgers on top of that sewer so that you can layer the whole top of it with hamburgers, never mind the fact that those hamburgers are poison. The next layer of hamburgers is not so poison. The next layer of hamburgers is not so much. And the next layer of hamburgers. And so now that you're 20 or 30 hamburgers deep, the sewer is way down there deep. And so anybody who comes to that place, when he sees it, all he sees is hamburgers. The hamburger in the sewer. <laughs> uh -huh. that's, that's one of the weird, that's one of the more interesting like, things you said before. <laughs> but, like, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, yeah, that, that's, that's a funny one. Uh, the, the one <laughs> I don't really, I, don't, I mean, I'm going to be honest, I don't really understand it. But I, the the paint in the house that made a lot of sense to me. Um, okay, well the hamburger in the sewer is exactly the same thing. It's the mind that if you keep layering your hamburgers or keep layering it with wholesome thoughts, then the old unwholesome thoughts get sunk to the bottom. Hmm. The Buddha talks about this: is that you're going to have a new past. So that the old past is layered over with more wholesome stuff. And the more time you spend with wholesome thoughts, then the old unwholesome thoughts, they're not going to go away completely. But you're going to be able to recognize an unwholesome thought as an unwholesome thought fairly quickly. They go back into the closet where they belong and then they die of starvation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because you're not because you're not feeding them anymore right exactly so another example of that would be imagine that you've got a weed that's growing up in uh the divisions of the cracks in the pavement or between let us say the curb uh, uh and the uh sidewalk but inside that concrete there's a root uh of a um a weed and it keeps growing and growing 
And the old farmer says, I'm going to pull up that sidewalk to get that weed out. But he doesn't want to do that because the city's not going to be happy that he's destroyed your property. And so he's going to have to repair it after he gets the weed up. It's going to be a lot of expense. But there's another way to do it. And that is, is that whenever the weed comes up, just whack it off at the surface. You don't have to dig up the concrete. We're not going to go deep. We're just going to say whatever's at the surface, we're going to whack it off. If we can remember. If that weed keeps coming up to the surface and putting up a chute and keep whacking it off, pretty soon the roots are going to get weaker and weaker and eventually die because the roots got no sunshine. It's got no exposure. And so this is how we practice so that we can maintain the first jhana is we start whacking these things off one at a time. And every time we whack that weed off, that would be also the same analogy as throwing yet one more hamburger into the sewer. That's very, uh, that feels really good to hear. So like, that feels like, yeah, I, I'm in the, I'm in the, yes, I can do it part of things right now. Like, yeah, yes. this is something yeah, I can do. Yeah, you can do that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's like so doable, like I could do that. <laughs> well, that's the I, applying of the mind and we keep applying it or we keep sustaining that. In other words, whenever those unwholesome thoughts come up, we just whack it off. No need to go deep and solve all the problems and psychological issues and stuff like that because that's no one's going to solve all those issues right well uh <laughs> or, the fact is is that they were not issues or if that in the time they might have been issues and they also because of those issues developed habits but the reality is is that now that issue is not an issue now but the habit of that issue is there mm. so in the sense of uh, uh, hiding the note and trying to escape the danger and dealing with the fear, guess what? You don't have notes from your teachers anymore. <laughs> not really, not literally, but you do have notes from the universe that you try to hide. Mm. Yeah. In a figurative way, okay? So the habit of hiding from what's real. It's that same habit. Yeah. Okay. And so by seeing that habit, now we can say, hey, I don't have to hide anymore. I can handle whatever little note that comes by. That's just another leaf. And by just pulling it up, that means now we just, that's one more hamburger. I don't have to feel bad because I got a note from the universe, say I talk too much. <laughs> <laughs> and so we can say, yeah, I've talked too much. Yeah, isn't that beautiful? That's because I have a lot to say. And some of the stuff that I've been saying has been magnificent. <laughs> Because I've been listening to others. I wasn't talking all the time. I listened <laughs> and I got some magnificent stuff. And so now that's what I have to say. 
But if I was not listening to anybody, then all I would have is my own garbage to say. And so um, going back then to that point about the applied and sustained thoughts is, is that how quick can we come back to that applying and sustaining of those wholesome thoughts? Now and I have a question. Chasing the breath. Okay, go ahead. So applied and sustained thoughts is first jhana, right? I, yes. But is applying it to the wholesome and sustaining on the wholesome because you can yeah. apply the mind to a bank robbery and sustain your mind on that bank yeah, robbery. Yeah, yeah. Apply, yeah, yeah. Wholesome, wholesome, wholesome. I know. Exactly. Of course. Um, when you go into second jhana, um, do you, do, you don't need to keep applying the thoughts. Is that correct? Or is it kind of just applied... What is here's how as, we're doing that. OK. Uh, I'll use um, an engine, a Stan, Stanley steamer. The engine is a uh, is a steam engine. But it uses a, a vortex so that you get this boiling water hot. But you have to actually kick it and get it into motion. And then it'll run. But piston engines are exactly that way. That's why we have starter motors to crank them up. You got that? Have you ever heard of, you know, you turn it and it goes, and then it comes because it's finally got the gas because actually in that sense, it wasn't that the engine wouldn't start. It was that the engine didn't have any fuel and it had to have the fuel pump also going so that now that you've gotten the fuel in there, the engine will fire up. Okay, so you've got that idea about both piston engines and also Stanley steamers that you got to get the thing rolling first. Okay, here's also something else that's quite known, and that is, is that when uh, an electro, uh, an electric motor. When it starts, the instant that the uh, power is put into it, because the resistance is so low, the power is very high. This is why a fan who's in uh, because the bearings are bad will get hot really quickly. But if the motor is spinning, then it doesn't get hot so fast. OK, so the torque has to be there to get that thing rolling. If there's not enough torque to get the thing spinning. OK, this is actually the law of inertia. This is a physical law. We've talked about it. I mean, I can just go on and on giving you more engineering um, now, examples about getting things rolling. Now, be, getting it rolling is uh, having a good attitude, right? Having a good attitude and being a no, actually, no, the getting it rolling is enjoying the ride after it's rolling. No, the getting the rolling here. Another example is you've got a car that stalled and you got to push it off. Right, because you push the car off this is in the old days. Now they have all the um, automatic transmissions and when they all have electric cars, my analogies will all fall apart. 
but when the car won't start and the battery is dead, then the kids will push the car off with a stick. Now, getting it going and yeah, from zero to two miles an hour is a lot of work. I did that before, yeah. But going it from two miles an hour to three miles an hour, that's easy. Getting it going, and then sometimes you get it going so fast that you got to run around the car to get into the driver's seat so you can put it in gear. (laughs) Yeah. So here's the point is, is that second jhana is like when you're actually on a roll. What is the role? The role of the feelings. And how do we get the feelings going is by pushing them off. Or starting the motor using our starter. What is the starter? The applied and sustained thought. So we apply the mind, sustain it, and supply the mind, sustain it, and that begins to get the thing rolling. And what is the rolling? Sukha and pity. We get the feelings rolling. Once we get the feelings rolling and rolling and rolling and rolling, now we begin to uh, stop pushing and go sit in the driver's seat and enjoy the ride. Okay, so with that analogy, what that means is, is the applied and sustained thought is going to get us into a great state of good feeling. The second jhana then is to stop thinking about how good we feel and actually experience how good we feel. And it's all cushy and bubbly and oh, it just gets so nice in that second jhana. <laughs> because it feels so good. How good can things feel? No, there's even better than that. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's like just when you think it climax, it's like a it's like a symphony. It's like just when you think it reached its climax, no, there's more beauty. Even oh, beyond there's it. even more. Yeah, there's, <laughs> there's even, even more. more. Uh-huh. And uh, but OK, so my next question would be once you've got it rolling, you're just enjoying the ride and you see and then maybe after some time that that thread comes up can you retreat back into first jhana like can you start with the wholesome thoughts again as like, that's you... the whole point that's the problem uh... with those who, who um you see the first jhana is where all the skills are developed the pity the sukha the applied, the sustained, the keeping the mind wholesome, uh, free from hindrances. Okay, and those are the skills to be developed, and those are the skills we're going to use later. If someone has not got those skills fully developed before they go into the second jhana, then the first thing that happens immediately when they get into first jhana. They come out of the first, uh, This, excuse me, is, when, when they go too quickly from the first into the second jhana, then when they get to the second jhana, it's such a surprise that they fall right back out of it, back into the hindrances. But then they want that feeling again. And not only that, but often that second jhana is done by accident rather than by clear intention. Okay. 
And so uh, what that means of the clear intention is, is that we're going to clearly apply and sustain and apply and sustain until we get that engine really, really running. Really running well. And in fact, that's good enough. That's the whole point about being completely satisfied in everything. And this is where we're actually taking the effort to remember to keep applying, keep sustaining, keep sustaining, keep sustaining. And then when we don't sustain, apply immediately again and then sustain and sustain and sustain. So what, what I'm getting is the longer we can sustain first jhana, the less and less fragile the next jhanas will be. Jhana like they won't be. be as, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that that's exactly sense. right. Right. Okay. So the whole show is the first jhana, and that's a really excellent way of saying it. I hadn't even thought about that, and I'm going to use that. I'm going to steal that material. <laughs> Comedians steal from each other all the time. <laughs> yeah, <I saw> <laughs> yeah, go for it. Yeah, fifty and sixty year old jokes are hilarious. When people hear them the first time, <laughs> 50 or 60 years later, people have been still laughing. So, yeah, we can use that concept that the John, the second, the third and the fourth are as fragile as the first jhana. Uh, and when the, when the first jhana is absolutely fully established, that's when we can intentionally start putting gaps between the wholesome thoughts, knowing that when the gap is there, when it when the gap is finished, it's going to be another wholesome thought. The way that it's happened mostly is uh, wholesome is mixed with unwholesome so that they've got a shaky first jhana and then they go into the second jhana and then the next thought that comes from that gap is an unwholesome thought. In other words, they crash land again. Okay, so learning to fly then in very, very calm weather is what we need to do with the first jhana before we go into the stormy weather of the second jhana. Why do I call that stormy? Is because that's how good the good feelings feel. They feel overwhelming. They feel really, really all over the place. They're preaching so to the choir. Yeah. Huh? You're preaching to the choir, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 the next thing I want to ask is, what is the third? What is the third jhana? Is that equanimity? What is that? That and, is and when you, we're paying most attention to the sukha rather than the pity. You have to get them both going in the first jhana, but then when we get into the second jhana we're experiencing how good it really does feel. And then in the third jhana, it's back to merely being satisfied, merely being comfortable and merely being safe and secure. But that merely is totally merely. In other words, we still have that pity, but the pity is sunk uh, or is um, something that we rise above. So that this pity, is what so the pity is more like a it's like a rapturous joy it's like a it's kind of more buzzy it's like it like it's more it ha, it's more energetic and the sukha it's a little it's like cooler 
It's like yes, nice. yes. Uh, okay, so I'm just making sure I'm getting those uh, words right. Um, okay, so then the third jhana becomes more sukha, or like you, the 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 pity calms down a little bit, and the sukha becomes more the focus. Would you say that? Yeah, and that each one of them is a stage of more relaxation, more peace. But the body starts off peaceful in the first jhana. That that's one of the plate, one of the items that you could say that there's actually a contradiction in the suttas. Are there? Does the first jhana have five factors, or does it have six? The answer to that would be that in the Anapanasati Sutta, it looks like that there's six. But in in uh, suttas like 119 and the Anapana and the excuse me, the Satipatthana Sutta, where they're talking about uh, most specifically 119, uh, talks about the first jhana as having five factors. Without talking about the relaxation of the body. So in the first jhana, the real jhana is going to have relaxation of the body as well as pity. Sukha, and the body is going to be relaxed because it's free from tension. It's going to be relaxed because it's completely comfortable. So as students are sitting in meditation and their butt hurts, that's just showing tension and not relaxation. They can't possibly go into jhana while their butt hurts. They can study the butt while it's hurting. But that would be a dry insight. That would be the dry insight method. Not you recommended could do it. You could do that for the rest of your life. Right, <laughs> right. Would... That's what we've been doing our whole life is looking how bad our butt hurts. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what they mean by the dry insight. So in the first jhana, we get that body comfortable. And then we use that comfort so that we get into the second jhana with that grand, great, overwhelmingly how good this is. Yippee kayo kaye, eureka, uh, touchdown, uh, celebration kind of thing. But then that uh, actually, and Bhikkhu Buddhadasa talks about it that way, that actually after a while becomes too much work. Second jhana yeah. is not fair for a long time. That in fact, only a few breaths later, if we can maintain that not talking about it, but just experiencing, that's when we could really relax, even relaxation, the yee-haw, so that we just go into complete satisfaction. And now in the fourth jhana is even further relaxation. And that is the upeka or the equanimity which is basically coming to a state of steadiness to where uh, intentional safety and security and intentional comfort are no longer the issue. Now they become the given. And there's nothing much left to do except to experience the way the mind works in relationship to sensory input. So basically what we could say is, is that the jhanas are, are actually going 
backwards through the Paticca Samupada. The deeper into relaxation, then the further down into the, the way that the mind works at that deeper level, rather than how the mind works after it's got feelings. But we cannot control our feelings if they're bad feelings. That we have to learn to control the feelings, not by making them bad, because we've already experts at making bad feelings. No, the skill is to learn to make the feelings good. Once we can make the feelings good, then we can bring them down to basically no feelings at all. That's when we get really relaxed and really comfortable is because we don't have any feelings left. Everything is just steady. So with Sukha, there's still the feeling of, I like it and this is great. Upeka is when there's not much, not much feelings at all left. And the reason that there's not much feelings left is because we're not doing a lot of processing or the Pali word would be Nama Rupa or Sanya, which uh, we translate into English as perception or the process of uh, coming to a result. Now that process of coming to the result sometimes takes a long time. We get stuck into processing and not coming to a result. But in, even when that happens, we're still coming to intermediate results of this is not good enough yet. This is not good enough yet. This is not good enough yet. Let me keep looking and keep looking. It's still not good enough yet. But when things do get really good enough in the mind, in that quick point, that when we process something, that we're in its satisfactory by itself, then there's not much push. There's not much shove uh, or not much contact to give rise to feelings. So this is what we, they mean by um, neither perception nor non-perception. What that means is, is that the perception is very, very easy. Uh, the example that's used in the Vasudhi Maga is imagine that a clay bowl, like a lamp, uh, is filled with oil and stays there for a while. And then you dump the oil out and that uh, clay bowl is completely empty of oil. Except that a lot of oil has seeped in to the clay pot. So that if you rub your finger in there, you can find some oil. So we can do that now that in the old days, we used to have a mind full of processing, mind full of oil to burn, a mind full of uh, uh, things to think about. And so we did think about them in the thinking process. Thinking about it means what does thinking about? It means taking something new and comparing it with something old. That's what thinking really is, is taking something new and comparing it to something old and coming up with a result, which then that new result is something new that will process with something old. Or taking something new and processing it with something new is a much better idea. So this is where that fourth jhana then comes to the point of recognizing that the body actually has 
very little or no boundaries to it. That our, our perception has been where the boundaries are. When we stop perceiving where the boundaries are, the boundaries melt away because the boundaries weren't really real in the first place. Mm. But first, where does your skin stop and where does the cloth of your shirt begin? The reality is, is that they're mixed together. The perception is, is that I am me and the shirt is not me and they're separate. Yeah, so this I, is I what had... we mean by infinite space. That's the definition of infinite space, but infinite space is two words and the poly that are both translated wrong. It's not space, we're talking about boundaries and the lack of boundary. Because the boundaries are perceived. I had uh, an experience before where my body felt like my, my my body felt like it was a sugar cube that was dropped into water and it just dissolved. It just dissolves, and, exactly. The body dissolves because it's held together in the mind by perception. We perceive our bodies as being um, hardcore. But the reality is, is that we're part of our environment. When I'm sitting on this chair, the boundary between my butt and the clothing and the chair are uh, mixing together. The boundaries are not solid. Now, I had so many points. So a lot of the teachings of like, or like certain non-dual teachings or many um, awakening traditions are just talking about that. Like all they're doing is pointing to that um without but it's not very sta stable like it's not as stable as taking the that's because they didn't do the first jhana stable yeah yeah, yeah if yeah. you get yeah. the first jhana very stable then you can go into the second jhana yeah. very stably and then move into the yeah. third very stably and then move into the fourth jhana very stably and while you're there we watch how the mind works yeah so i feel like this is filling in some serious uh gaps because I would glimpse this thing, this thing of boundarylessness. I would glimpse it like from a little moments, like every now and then when the circumstances were right. Uh, but it wasn't like the jhanas like of taking it all the way. And like, because um, you can only glimpse these kinds of insights about the, the nature of sensei experience if you are relaxed enough to do it right i think you, you said something like that before um mm -hmm. you can't if you're thinking unwholesome thoughts you're never going to be able to understand this even if you no matter how hard you try to yeah <laughs> no matter how many like thing, non-dual things you read about it or like how it feels and try to like then the make it, but that means uh, then that the non-dual is a perception or a um construction of the mind oh yeah um, or it's a concept so non-duality for almost everyone who knows all about it is still a concept yeah I, i'm tr i'm more but talking it's not about, an like, experience <laughs> yeah I guess I'm more talking about like the tantra, like that is so common, the the yoga 
like the many yoga practices of trying to uh trying to feel the expansion of the body or see see the emptiness of the body or the boundarylessness or whatever they just try to do that directly but they don't have any foundation for it where where i guess maybe maybe it works for some people but it didn't this is way better in my opinion well they'll tell you it does (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) because they're hiding the note hiding the note from the you know from the cosmic teacher the cosmic teacher Right, which is this, and the note says, "Hey, man, your your non-duality is just a concept," and he'll hide that note and pretend that it's an experience. It's repeatable over and over and over again, and I would how say you repeat that's... that over and over again is by doing the first jhana, repeating it over and over and over again. Everything has to do with repetition. I want to give a disclaimer because that's 90, maybe 95% of non-dual teachers, but there are some Buddhas amongst non-dual teachers. Absolutely. Where they, may, they may not talk Be ready about for it. We're going to have a whole bunch of them in the next couple of decades. Yeah. <laughs> We're getting some Buddhas so, going right now. We're going to have yeah. as many Buddhas at the U.S. as they are in Thailand. <laughs> That's optimistic. By I the so. thousand. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. Um, but all they have to they, do is recognize each other as such rather than competing with each other. Right now, it's all competition. I think true Buddhas can recognize other Buddhas. I don't know. I don't know. Takes one like to that, know one. Sure, it does. Takes, takes, takes one a to good know automobile one. mechanic. Takes a good computer guy to know another computer guy. But then another thing I wanted to say is that they, there may be a Buddha that doesn't have, like they know they have a really strong foundation of jhana. They just wouldn't think about it as jhana, and they wouldn't think about it as a practice. But nevertheless, it's there. It's like it has to be there for this mm-hmm. um even if they may talk about it differently or something but yeah but i would say you're right about 90 95 percent are hiding the note but not all of them are hi- i'm trying not, to say not absolutely all, all no yeah. don't go hide your notes and then you're buddha too that's the yeah. whole point i guess that's the way of looking at it is because and and this is really an important quality um of to to stop hiding the messages that come from reality because in fact that's that's why we lie all lying is just hiding some note that we don't like it and so we kill the messenger and hide the note and when we recognize that we do that we can start being friends with that messenger. Hey, man, thank you very much for telling me what I'm doing wrong, because that's the only way I'm going to be able to see it well enough to stop doing it. A funny thing I just thought about is <laughs> sometimes you you I heard you quote um, the teachings of Jesus before, and it was really nice. Like, I love that the kingdom where when it, is the kingdom of God going to come? Where is it going to be? The kingdom of heaven is within you. Mm-hmm. I love that one. 
I've never heard. That's in Luke 17. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've never heard about Jesus ever talking about John as that sounds ridiculous. Yes, so, he like, did. Yes, did he? he did. Sure. In the Garden of Gethsemane. Before the guards came. You know the story about somebody got a sword out and cut the ear off with someone and he stuck it back on? Yeah. And then the guy who he stuck the ear back on hauled him away and put him in the court. This There's a very interesting whole sequence of events that comes with him going into Jerusalem for the first time, going to the temple for the first time, getting really ticked off about what the money changers and the bankers were doing in the oh, yeah, church, yeah. and he threw yeah. them out. That was a mistake. If he had uh, any presence of mind, he would have gone and made friends with Caiaphas and then pointed out to Caiaphas that maybe you don't want the temple uh, money changers in the temple, that they could go out in the courtyard and do their business out there. All right. But he didn't do that. He threw them out of the temple and the money changers and Caiaphas got really ticked off at him for doing that. He was executed within a week of that time. All of that stuff happened during that week. And during that week, instead of heading over the hills out of town, he stayed in that, that garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. And there is where he told his uh, followers to watch with me. This is also referred to as a vigil or an all-nighter, and the, and Buddhists practice it on a regular basis. That would watch someone more on a, every two weeks or every once a month. Uh, we would sit up all night. That's an old, old practice, and that's what, what are the, uh, the monks doing when they're sitting up all night? They're watching. That's what the witness is all about. Yes. <laughs> and that's what the Buddhists, that, Jesus was teaching them meditation and they didn't John. understand what he was teaching them. And they would go to sleep and he'd wake them back up and he'd say, no, sit and watch with me. And that that is an avenue to jhana, right? That's the one. That's it. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. That makes to sense. Wake up, to um, wake up and to watch and look at what's going on. Look at what your mind is doing. I guess just like uh, there's different points of emphasis where it was like the teaching your teachings and the teaching of the buddha is um it's way more you it's less like ambiguous it's less ambiguous it's like really it's something that you can implement for yourself um without having to um like fill in the dots like you don't have to fill in the dots very much with buddhism like it, it seems very straightforward uh, mm -hmm. So I think that's a lot of the so, dots have gotten lost, though. Sometimes what? dots are intentionally taken out. But in Christianity, in the case of Jesus, is they, the they did a whole lot of scrubbing a lot of dots out that I yeah, imagine that the were there. Gone. Yeah. yeah, a lot of the dots are gone. Uh, and because yeah, and ordinary people have passed on uh, this collection of dots. And along the way, they lose some occasionally over the centuries. Some of the dots have been lost because the caretakers haven't been capable to make sure that all the dots are still there. Well, yeah, also you have 
to also it makes sense because the the Buddha was comes from India, where in India, the truth is out was out in the open and it and the truth was celebrated, whereas uh, in Abrahamic countries, if you said the wrong thing, you'll get executed very quickly. Um, which Jesus the Romans were good at that about. too, <laughs> and and the Romans, yeah. So 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 even though the teachings of Jesus probably were very strong in the beginning, or, or like it it had a profound effect on people, and still has a profound effect on people. The society and culture of the time must have, yeah, changed things a lot and like uh, muddied the waters, and that happened too with Buddhism too, to an extent, right? Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. And in fact, it was a major event, but we can talk about it later. But um, that event was at the time of the soak. And mm-hmm. what happened was, was that he, uh, the emperor, uh, started to spread, intentionally spreading the teaching of the Buddha. But he did it by giving free housing and free clothing. And so a lot of people joined. More people joined than the cadre who was in, in existence then can handle. Imagine it like this, that you've got a university that has 5,000 students and they have 500 teachers. And then all of a sudden, some new uh, dean or new uh, president comes in, changes a bunch of rules, and now that university has 50,000 students. We do have room for 50,000 students in the sense of classrooms and in the sense of uh, other facilities, but what we don't have is any more professors. So 5,000 or 500 professors and 5,000 students, we could do something. 500 professors and 50,000 students, and the students wind up teaching themselves. That's what happened in the time of the soak. That was the beginning of the Mahayana or the uh, uh, Mahasanga was because they, uh, when the Arahats found out what had happened, they wanted to have a conference. And going back to the it takes one to know one, if someone doesn't know the, the entrance exam, they can't get in to the conference. And so all of the big, big crowd of students who couldn't get into the conference says, well, let's go have a conference of our own. Now, if King Asok had been wise, he would have not had that original conference. But by the way, this is the third, the third conference. The first one was right after the Buddha died. The second one was about nearly 100 years later. And then this third conference was only a few years after that. If they had had that conference out in the woods, there would have been no problem. It would have been secret. It says, you know, on the full moon of such and such a month, we're going to do this out in the Deer Park or at uh, 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 the Jetta's Grove or whatever. But no, they held this conference in Rajgiri, the capital. That's what caused the problem. And so that was when the breakup of the Sangha really happened because there were too many who had joined because it was free room and board. That was also the birth of the Ding and the Kaya and all kinds of other literature. That was the starting of the commentaries. Pernicious views, right? Pernicious views. 
Right, and all like, of this happened. Yeah. That, that's why you need. That's why you need a real Buddha, a real teacher, because when you bring up that pernicious view, they don't hesitate uh, to smack it no, down. No, <laughs> no. The problem. Well, you're you're correct in the sense of yes, this student with this pernicious view needs the Buddha. The problem when you've got 50,000 people who were there uh, with their permissions views, how many Buddhas do you need for 50,000? A lot. It's it's a lot of people. Yeah, 500 is not enough. Yeah. That's the issue. But, yeah, that's uh, what I'm saying. But as time grows, there's going to be more and more Buddhas show up in the West. So that we can handle more and more of the students who have pernicious views about meditation or whatever. What's that? What's that word? Um, a Patrika Buddha, or it's it's the Buddha that Pachitra. doesn't teach. Pachitra. Yeah, the Patika yeah. Buddha. Mm-hmm. Buddha that doesn't. All, teach. all Buddhas are that way until there there are circumstances that force them into teaching. Uh, okay. Yeah, because a, a Buddha doesn't need to teach, right? It doesn't. They're completely content. Just exactly yeah. so. That's why your best teachers are Sotapan and better. But the actual Arahats don't really care that much whether people got pernicious views or not. Yeah. They just take fight. Not my problem. And so your best teachers are the ones who are still practicing their own stuff. But thank God for the arhats or the Buddhas that really love to talk because they 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 talk because they enjoy it. <laughs> so like mm-hmm. uh, not because they feel a need to teach or enlighten someone, but because they just like talking about the about the dominant about the dom- truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's 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 fun. It's fun that way because um, the teacher is having fun, and that, that <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and that makes the student want to like get in on the get in on the fun of it and like uh, be like them, right? Okay. Bye bye. Yes, I'm back. Okay, Doke. All right, well, I think this is a good note to end it on. Um, I, I think this has been a really great conversation. It's It's been amazing, uh, <laughs> like really amazing. Um, the thing that I'm gonna take away from this is the first jhana, the more I'm going to focus on, because I didn't pay enough mind to it. I was like, oh, first genre, first genre, whatever. But it's really, it's more important than I thought it was. So I'm definitely going to take that away from it. And mm-hmm. and and uh, not take pride in like higher states because they're just, will go away. And they're not, like, they're not higher <laughs> at all. There's just higher. more subtle things to look at. More subtle things to look at. Mm-hmm. And but, the first thing you want to look at is, can you apply and sustain the thought in the whole song? 
then the second thing you look at is how good you feel. Then the third thing is you look about how nice it really is. And then the next one is just to recognize that, hey, oh, now we're looking at how the mind actually works. That's the fourth job, is actually seeing how the mind works, seeing that our perception is, is basically taking a brand new hamburger and dipping it in the sewer before it's served. Uh, it's, it's beautiful in the beginning and it's beautiful in the end. It really just... Uh-huh. So you have to practice as if it's beautiful. So when, when students are struggling in their practice of meditation, they're not following the teachings of the Buddha. There's no struggle to it. It's going from relax to relax to relax. That next set of relaxed, you don't even have to say it. It's just there he is. This has been a great conversation. I'm glad you've gotten something out of it. Thank you. And I'll talk to you soon. Yes. Relax. Bye bye. <laughs> bye, -bye.